Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Uh, today, we uh, have a very cool conversation planned with Chris uh, Jagger and Victor Zonders. Uh, I want to kind of set out a little bit of the context for this conversation. So I don't usually promote my own tweets on a podcast, but I think it's relevant here because I think this conversation arose out of a tweet that I had that both of you guys responded to saying that you wanted to talk. And I was like, well, you know, if both of you respond to that, uh, why don't we just have a podcast, right? Because I think this is a very important issue. And that's really kind of local regenerative food system distribution, right? So in Doomer Optimism, we often have a lot of podcasts about homesteading or farming, but we don't have that many on kind of the, you know, what happens after the farm uh, part of it and, and how do you connect um, customers to farmers and make it a viable food system. So I'm going to go ahead and read this quote um, and then I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. So the quote is, low-key some interesting innovations on the distribution side of local food systems from CSAs and food hubs to marketing cooperatives and the revival of farmers markets. I'm hopeful that a lot of the coordinating infrastructure is in place to eventually compete with big ag. Okay, so uh, with that kind of context, Chris, why don't you start? Just kind of give me a sense of your background, especially with regards to food systems. Sure, yeah. So um, so I started uh, my farming journey in the late 90s um, in Santa Cruz uh, after working in Alaska in the fishing industry for a season. I ended up in Santa Cruz. Uh, I'd been curious about food systems for a while. Uh, I had a friend who was really actively involved in Food Not Bombs. Um, and so I helped with that a couple times, dumpster diving, getting food outside of, uh, backside of grocery stores uh, just to feed people in the Bay Area. Um, and I had this uh, kind of awakening as far as, well, I, I'm good with using waste food, but also can we produce food? I was young, I was probably 23 at the time, uh, just trying to see where I could go with it and uh, moved to Santa Cruz, uh, started working on farms there, met my now wife there at the same time she was studying agroecology at the UC there. Um, we both were uh, involved with the homeless garden project there a bit, uh, then worked on some other farms. And then everybody at that time frame mid 90s, late 90s, started looking into interning on farms because it seemed like the right way to go. Uh, she and I both ended up interning on farms in Colorado um, and were on that farm. She was on one farm, I was on another farm, 20 miles away from each other, uh, did a full season of that, and then got invited back a year later to manage the farm in Colorado, the vegetable side of the farm in Colorado. That farm in Colorado was called Guidestone and they were doing a raw milk dairy um, and they were doing a herd share program of a raw milk dairy at that time because raw milk was illegal in Colorado at that time to sell direct. But they came up with a system where people would buy the herd and then reap the benefits of that herd. And so Melanie and I were the gardeners for their five uh, acre CSA. Um, but the whole farm itself was a big CSA program. Um, and so it was raw milk, uh, vegetables, uh, all the meats. We had uh, beef, uh, beef, goat milk, uh, sheep, 
chickens, turkeys, uh, just kind of, it was kind of like that early, early on the full diet CSA program. Uh, we supplied, we supplied to mostly people based out of the Denver and Boulder area, mostly affluent folks that were supporting it. Um, but it was about 500 families, I believe, um, at the time. So that really spawned my interest in the food systems at that time. Uh, she and I also were really actively involved in permaculture at that time. We uh, ended up taking our permaculture design course up at the, uh, with Jerome Ozentowski up at the, um, it's like a high elevation uh, permaculture design center. Uh, I think he's still there. Um, it was him and uh, Peter Bain, who was the editor for Permaculture Activist at the time, and then this other guy, um, John Crookshank, who has passed away since, and uh, he was actually tied in with the farm in Colorado that we were working at. Um, so we did that for two years, running the garden system there, and then we ended up moving to Oregon. Uh, mainly, we were we were going to farm in Colorado, but the that year that we went over to the western slope of Colorado was where we were looking to land in Cortez Durango area, and that was the year that the reservoir was empty, and so we said, well, it's going to be challenging to farm here uh, if there's no water, even though the land prices were pretty reasonable. Um, we ended up moving out to Oregon and linked up with a guy who was doing a goat dairy out here and decided to help him for a while while we're looking for land and found finally the piece of land that would be our homestead. And my wife's parents were really supportive of what we were doing. They did put the down payment on the land for us, which we're eternally grateful for that. And we started basically at zero uh, doing a, a multi-diverse vegetable uh, operation. Um, we started with the CSA concept is what we thought we were going to make our living doing 100 members, $500 for a year, 50000 a year, no problem. We're going to do this for the next 40 years, easy. Um, and then we quickly started learning about what it was like to do a CSA farm here in Southern Oregon, where I live, which is a very uh, kind of remote region. There's not a huge urban center here. Um, and so we quickly moved into starting to do farmers markets. So we started that farm, we started in, um, it was 2004 was our first year of farming. And then our last year uh, farming actively was 2021, um, kind of on the backside of the, the pandemic. So that kind of brought us up to today. Um, and we've done everything from CSAs, the classic CSA, hybrid CSAs, wholesale sales to grocery stores, co-ops, restaurants. Um, we've dealt with regional uh, distributors. Um, and we started at zero acres and worked up the maximum acreage we ever farmed was 40 acres. Um, and then when we were finished farming, we uh, were back down to around 12 to 15 acres. Um, so I've seen the whole gamut of uh, running a diversified vegetable operation from zero to mid-scale and back down again. Um, and it's something I'm really passionate about still, of course, uh, but there's a lot to be learned from what I've seen over the last, you know, the last 25 years. Yeah, well, be uh, before we move on to you, Victor, uh, why did you, why did you guys decide to get out? And do you want to just briefly describe kind of 
the direction yeah. you're going in now with the media stuff? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, the region that I'm in here in Southern Oregon, uh, it's somewhat remote. Uh, our closest metropolitan area is Medford, which is about 80,000 people. Um, really labor came down to be our biggest uh, hurdle. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the marketplaces kind of saw a decline, like the farmer's markets were still really good, but a lot of the restaurants were having a hard time on the backside of COVID uh, surviving. And that was a marketplace for us. We were also up, up against a lot of the retail outlets. We're really up against the California effect. A lot of being so close to California, uh, the organic produce that was available coming out of California is a day or two old, honestly, once it gets up here. So it was always hard to compete with that. So a lot of retail outlets would not really want to be supportive of the small farms always. It was more of a, a greenwashing situation where it'd be like, well, we'll buy a little bit. Um, so we we're challenged with that. Um, and then also uh, my kids are almost to high school age now. My one boy is in high school. So we also wanted to move into town and offer them a good high school to go to so we've now handed my farm is being rented by the people that were my farm managers previously and they're doing their own enterprise here um using all of the infrastructure that i've built out um and that that works really good as a, a handing off model to the next generation they're focusing on seeds for the organic seed industry and some fresh veg as well um and so now the big question for me is you know, I don't want to walk away from agriculture. So what can I do to, to help, help keep it going forward? Um, and so I've been working on just building this idea of a, of a new media company, probably around podcasting or something like that, to really hear the stories of farmers and people that support the greater farming industry and kind of how that's developing in a, you know, in a 2023 world. So that's yeah. kind of the, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Nice. Nice. Well, I just want to offer, uh, as you're building out your media company, if you want, um, at the beginning to use the doom Optimism platform to say, interview people just to kind of get running. Yeah. It's available. I already like you. So, uh, awesome. <laughs> you have that invitation. That's actually how doom Optimism started as well. We started, uh, podcasting or, or, yeah, podcasting on a different platform called the Stoa, and then we decided to make it our own podcast. So, just throwing that out there. Awesome, thank you, mm -hmm. uh, Victor. Tell us your story. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. That was it. Was great to get a full background on on all that. Uh, so, I um, a bit different. I uh, used to be very much a tech guy. I I grew up as a technologist, loved computers and stuff, and was um, in my early 20s done with university and started working as a IT business consultant kind of thing, uh, but didn't last very long in that setting and uh, wound my way somehow into uh, a permaculture design uh, course with Richard Perkins, who's a really uh, prominent designer over here and a really good educator. Uh, and um, where is over I'll, here? It's just oh, so so yeah. Sorry, I'm in Sweden. Uh, so I'm in. I live in southern Sweden. I live in uh, live in a village of about a thousand people. Um, but uh, so after I I got into permaculture and really was blown away by 
the amount of things I hadn't thought about or seen before or the kind of approaches to systems uh, that I didn't uh, have before that. Uh, and uh, got really excited uh, about fungi. I think it's something about the network kind of um, patterns that really drew me in because that's something that I was already working with. Uh, and uh, after, so after that, uh, we had a, a, a kid, me and my partner, and uh, wanted to move out of the city. We're living in a few different cities here in Sweden, uh, and then found this place, uh, a village about an hour outside of Mama, which is our closest city, uh, close to Copenhagen. Um, and basically, I started hobbyist uh, farming a little bit, or like gardening and uh, planting trees and doing a bunch of mushroom farming here just in the yard. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, uh, an opportunity rose to take over uh, some space in the village. Uh, and we ended up starting a, just around COVID, we ended up starting a microgreens and mushroom farm. Uh, so, and basically what I'd been doing uh, the years leading up to that is I'd been working on trying to build tools for local food distribution. So I built, we helped uh, me and a couple of other people start designing this thing called local food nodes, which we were uh, basically a kind of pre-sell farmer's market where everything was uh, organized beforehand and then everybody met up at a certain time and place and you just handed over all of the goods. It was like a 15-minute thing. Uh, so farmers kind of went around to a bunch of those in the night. Uh, and uh, there was a similar thing happening on Facebook. So that was like uh, the, the parallel to what we were doing, but just on a very different, messy uh, process. Uh, so I tried doing that with our mushrooms and stuff and found that to be really hard, actually, to spend all of my afternoons and evenings running, just going around because I had, we now have two kids and afternoons are, afternoons and evenings are not when you want to be away um, or when I wanted to be away. So uh, we've been trying a bunch of different things with the mushrooms. It's a fairly small operation still. Uh, I haven't made my full living through the mushrooms uh, very much. It's, I mostly have done other things like consulting things and stuff on the side in order to to supplement that. Uh, and uh, but we've tried. I've also done about a year. I did a project of exploring food co-ops in Sweden. So we went around to interview. Uh, all the ones we could find basically and map them out and and do like a handbook based on all of the experience of different different models for for food co-ops uh, and buyers clubs and that kind of thing uh, and I'm super excited about that model we've started a buyers club in our village where where uh, basically the way we run it is that we do monthly once a month we do an order uh, from a bunch of local producers and some some regional and uh, distributors as well um, and basically, um, one person in the association is responsible for one producer or, or like we get to somebody's excited about some producer and they pull them in and then they handle that relationship, uh, basically, which I find is a really uh, nice model. Um, so I'm exploring that and now I'm, I'm also moving in more to I'm working with this um, framework called Holochain and building applications in a distributed manner. And uh, I'm really excited to build some of the things I've been wanting for a long time for our food co-op uh, on that so that we can start using that internally uh, and then also see how that model fits uh, for others. Because I know a lot of, lot of co-ops around here uh, that I know are also looking for support uh, in their processes. Mm -hmm. um, 
so yeah and so i i've also i'm also involved in a, like starting an eco village kind of thing here where where we would have a larger uh production site uh, and so that's there's a, there's a couple of different threads on like scale and and stuff but uh basically i've been been a mid small to mid uh mushroom farmer uh and and i'm really really excited to figure out how to do like who who does what in in getting people the food they want because i think there's a large role for people that are uh, actively uh, supporting and interested in their food to help farmers um actually take care of take care of all that admin and logistics so farmers get to farm i mean that's the that is I, that's what i've also uh, felt that like probably 70 percent of my time as a mushroom farmer has been spent on trying to distribute the stuff which is uh a lot of a lot of skill that is not necessarily something that the people that love farming have uh in my experience right um yeah so maybe that's a do you want to uh, talk a bit more about what Holochain is and what you think that can enable uh, for food cooperatives and food systems in general? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the reason I got really excited about Holochain when I uh, found it a couple of years ago and got into that community uh, was the idea that you can create a space for a group uh, that is kind of like a generic space or like um, the way uh, we talk about it now, sometimes it's like it's surface area for a group to, to bind things onto. Uh, and what we can do then is to, to create a sort of module for, for collective purchasing, uh, for instance, that could be added to groups that are already doing other things. So once you've kind of set up your, set up your group uh, it, with this, uh, with Holochain as the base, um, then you can add on uh, collective purchasing. So any anything like a school or a church or whatever group that's already doing stuff can just start handling that function as well if the 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 facilities are there for it and stuff. And and just maybe more basic. So Holochain is basically a framework that uh, allows our computers to talk to each other uh, peer to peer without there being any sort of central servers and stuff. And you don't need any organizations that are middle men for the applications kind of you just uh i just download an application and run it and i find other peers and then we can just coordinate um as we as we please um and it's also a possibility like there's since there is no <clears throat> one network or anything like that you have to coordinate with you can experiment with your group and and make changes to the software uh the way you want it and if it turns out well you can just share that with other groups uh, so it's a really it, it supports a lot of um, evolution, I think, in group behavior. Uh, that's one of the most exciting things to me about moving on to to distributed uh, infrastructures. Nice, nice. I, I want to just just note or mention, by the way, that uh, you guys are also free to ask questions of each other. <laughs> so if you want to jump in at some point, uh, I don't want to dominate the questions because both of you have more experience uh, than me, and so I want to give you guys the opportunity to do that. Uh, I'll just throw out real quick. Um, so I'm curious uh, if in either of your kind of areas, so here in Western North Carolina, it seems that the model that is pretty rapidly growing besides we have CSAs and farmers markets, but the model that seems to be growing uh, are food hubs. Um, we have one in my town. I think there's at least a dozen now in Western North Carolina alone. 
And basically the idea there is that you have a piece of software uh, that, you know, it's kind of like a, a, an Amazon shopping cart where you go on to the website and you get all the different farmers products. You know, I fill out my cart, you know, as a customer uh, on, you know, by Monday of the week. And then, you know, everybody's collective orders goes to the farmers, the farmers, it aggregates it into their specific, you know, uh, you know, their specific farm and they see, okay, I need to bring whatever it is, 20 cabbages and 40 bottles of kimchi and whatever else right to to the food hub on wednesday the food hub is just basically like you know a meeting place um but it you know with that software it kind of coordinates you know farmers come once a week to bring their stuff and customers come once a week uh to get their stuff um i'm just curious you know i'm always fascinated how culture and landscape helps to determine what models eventually get used and i'm wondering you know i know like here in west north carolina it's very hilly it basically the landscape enforces kind of small scale farms. Um, and, you know, I think, as you were saying, Victor, it's very difficult for an individual farmer to spend, you know, to market their product, uh, besides like go to farmers markets, uh, just because they're so small, and they have to spend their time on the farm. And so this seems to be a way that that's evolving here to to solve that problem. Um, of course, the downside of it, in my mind, is that you don't really have the convivial aspect. It's very efficient, but it's not like a farmer's market where you're actually meeting each other and getting to know each other. You know, you pull up in your car, you get your stuff and you go. And uh, so that's that's the downside of that model for me. Um, I'm just curious if either of you guys have, have thoughts on that model. If you've seen that model where you are, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so several things to, unpack there from what you said. Um, I think that the, I think that the food hub model is probably something that's going to work now that we have technology at the level that it is. I think even 10 years ago, it wasn't there, but now where we can make those administrative tasks be automated by software, I think we're at that point where that can start being a, a possible solution. I, I think that always the challenge with like when we were doing CSA um, was the administrative side. It's kind of like what Victor said too, was like, you're spending your time, you know, doing all these details. Now, if that can be automated through software, I think that we're going to see that, that that might become the dominant way to, to distribute food because of the downsides that we've seen to CSA over the last 20 years, which are at least in America, it's that people want selection, whether that's the right way to be or not. That's just how it is, is that people want to choose what they want, um, which we found that when we first started doing CSA, uh, we we're like, this is the way it is. And here you go, people, you know, you're paying up front, you're getting this box of produce each week. But we also had a lot of turnover every year with, with our customer base. And eventually we went to a model where we did a CSA program that was called Market Bucks, where we still had people pay up front at the beginning of the year. So we had that working capital at the beginning of the year, but then we just gave them cards that were basically like business size cards that were each worth um, $50 each. So we'd be like, if you paid for a full share, you would get 10 of those cards and then they would 
they would only pay $425 for those $500 worth of produce. So that was your value add right there. And then they would come to the market and just shop for whatever they wanted. Um, that started working really well for us. And that was like a real key for us of like, oh, people really do want this selection. So now we get into this food hub model. I think that that's the, my friends that are farmers around the country that I've asked about the food hub model. That's what all of them are saying too, is that people really like that selection. They also uh, like being able to the ease of ordering online and just going there and picking it up. Um, they also said that a lot of the folks that do pick up at the food hub to get their box for the week, they also see them at the farmer's market um, for that for that community connection. So that's something else that I think that we always should keep in mind is that I don't think there's ever going to be one model of distribution to rule them all. I think we should always have these diversified models of, of distribution just so you can you can fill people's needs in different ways. And I think that that's kind of the direction we're going with this more decentralized mindset that we're fought, we were wanting to fall into is that that's kind of how you can find those niches in your life, you know, is to, to fill those out. The, the food hub model overall, I think it's kind of like you were saying, as far as landscape, I think it really depends on where you are in the country as well. The most successful models I know of have been in really large urban areas because you just have the sheer numbers to work with. And then it's usually, if you have sheer numbers to work with, then you are able to find the funding, however that is through grants or, or investment or whatever, but to find the funding it takes to actually build that food hub center out. Um, it's We've tried that here in, in our region of Southern Oregon and it's really difficult because we just don't have the population base to, to support it. And so many people here grow their own gardens, um, their own personal gardens. So that makes it a, a challenge as well. But I, I'm hopeful with the, the direction that software is going. Um, I, I think it's really matured a lot um, to the point that I, I think it's gonna really relinquish the need to pay humans to, to take care of, or as many humans as it's needed in the past. Um, I mean, I'm pro-human, but at the same time, we're trying to, we're working with real tight margins here. So we have to look at where we can use tools to our advantage, so. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I want to give you a chance, Victor, just just one, one, one more note on that. So a couple of weeks ago, I, I talked with a director of one of the these regional food hubs and used other points. And it's interesting because these, this is also a very rural region and for some reason they're making it work and I want to figure out why. Uh, but he was saying that they've been doing pretty well. I mean, they're a nonprofit, their structure is nonprofit, but they're making a lot of, you know, their, their revenue share of, you know, donation share is, has been steadily increasing, like they're doing pretty well. Um, and he, the thing that he's trying to figure out is I need to kind of expand these facilities to, to basically, you know, scale this out a little bit and, you know, but that requires financing and, you know, he's wondering if, well, going to the kind of traditional financial system, you know, can I do that without kind of selling, selling my soul, right? Uh, because, of course, the traditional financial system doesn't, doesn't value 
many aspects of local and regenerative agriculture, right? These are not financial values that they're providing, right? Their community cultural values, their ecological values, uh, their health values, um, you know, et cetera. And so he's kind of at this inflection point where he's trying to figure out, you know, doing okay, doing pretty well, but how do we, how do we, you know, keep going? Um, so yeah, just, just thought I mentioned that, it just came to my mind. Victor, uh, go for it. Right. So I think the, the food hub model is what we're doing, basically, and what it's a lot of what I've been seeing around here also um, in different forms. And to me, it's like, and, and I mean, our, our little virus uh, club in the village, uh, our food hub is a really small one, actually. We're about 20 families right now. So it's actually like we need we would need for for the producers that we support to be able to uh, to make a living properly, they there would need to be more of them around. But it's like the twenty people are just in our village, and there's about a thousand people in our village. So there could probably be a few more that's gonna uh, join eventually. I'm I'm hoping. Um, but since we are that small, this is this is based just on the uh, drive that people want to have the kind of food that we're, we're, we're getting, which is not super easy to get around here at the sometimes at the local store and stuff like that. So basically, it's really important for us actually to make sure that the administrative side of all this gets really, really dealt with by the technology because that's the stuff that nobody really wants to do like people are usually quite all right with like handling the incoming food and like dividing stuff up and, and stuff like that but handling like the bookkeeping and and like who did the orders or did people pay or like all that kind of stuff is not something that anybody's really excited about uh most of the time so that's that's something that i think will be i think it's great actually to take that out of take that out of the the kind of question of like who's going to do what uh, if we can um and there's also a bunch of like i really I, I loved hearing about the way you were using those cards uh because it's something i've been thinking about a lot around credit uh and that's also something that i'm super excited uh about with using holochain for these kind of applications because it's <clears throat> it's got like a very strong support for things like creating internal credit within groups and also credit within different actors that are connected to the network um, because that can be secure credit and because it's kind of a cryptographic basis for the for the things you can't really cheat in those kind of situations um so i'm i i think that what we really need to do uh in the same way that i in the other right because we like the, our food co-op is also inside of a little co-working space that's there and there's like an event space. And, and so it's all kind of mushed into one, which is kind of why there's a lot of people moving in and out of it. And I think that 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 like uh, possibility of uh, mixing different contexts is really something that makes this uh, stronger. And uh, one thing that I've realized in the other context is like if, if we're trying to make decision making and administration and stuff as simple as possible, uh, then what we can do is free up some time to dedicate to make sure that we have that conviviality. So you adjourn or you make sure that you have uh, times when people come in that are basically just for the conviviality and to make sure that we know each other and build relationship. And with food, of course, it's like people do want to see what all the food is like and talk to the people that produce it. And like that's a, that's an important thing. So we've had a few times had like market days and stuff like that, where we uh, kind of meet at our local restaurant is also really good at that, at, at, at finding people and bringing them in and having like a day where people get to stay outside the restaurant and, and show what they have. And 
um, I think that that's super important to to keep and to to for people to see what's happening and and get into it and 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 build relationships with the people because a lot of the times they don't meet them uh, when we're when we're delivering through the food hub. Uh, so I, I I really think that that is important. I think that that's without that I don't think that we'll have a strong like the relationships make it. Uh, otherwise I don't think it's going to. It's so easy to fall back on just going to the supermarket if you're in that kind of flow already. Um, if you don't feel like I'm getting something special out of this relationship and like that kind of, it is the food that I want. And I know it's the food that, that, that I want because I know the people that grow it and I know how they grow it and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, I uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's a crucial, crucial part. Uh, and one uh, another thing that I hope that these food hubs will do is to be like a, you know, and that's also some could be connected to credit, but but be like a launching pad for new uh, new enterprises that have like once you have enough something that I'm really excited to build is to build a kind of registry of once you have a couple of food hubs around that are all using the same uh, software or at least compatible software, then creating the kind of registries where people are that are. Uh, inclined to farm regeneratively or stuff like that get to sign up and be kind of validated by the other co-ops and farmers and stuff so that you can kind of have the customers really early uh, early on and and maybe even get like a crowdfunding situation going or something for people to start or uh, that kind of stuff that that would be super excited uh, to me to see I mean that's I'd love to do that with mushrooms to get more mushroom farmers on because I would love to stay at the kind of one 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 and a half person operation uh and have lots of those because it's kind of especially mushrooms are really really well suited for that because it's a small um floor space kind of kind of thing mm -hmm. um so yeah uh so, so just to just to clarify because i find this interesting uh so you you were talking at the end about kind of a, a farmer to par farmer peer kind of evaluation where like if your other farmer friends, you know, they, they, they see your operation. They're like, okay, this person's legit. Um, then they're, be, they're invited into the network. And that's kind of like almost a replacement for say organic certification or something. Right. Cause I know the complaint about these kind of national certification schemes is that they're like inflexible and they're maybe easily greenwashed as well. And so is that, is that kind of what you're kind of proposing there is this kind of more peer to peer, kind of certification system that customers can can kind of believe in yeah mm -hmm. basically and i think i mean that can go it can be farmers that 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 validate other farmers it can be it can be like um you know the people the consumers that can come out and visit the farms and validate that they've been there and seen this or that uh or it could be uh, I mean, I, I think that there is a role actually for some sort of consultancy thing that can also, especially in the case of farmers looking for investment, that can kind of validate whether or not the practices you are are contributing, like soil scientists or or people that work water retention or that kind of stuff, yeah. so that you can kind of get that get that um, validation to make sure that where invest when investment goes or when investment comes for ecological function if that happens and and i think it might then that then you have the kind of robust and 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 like if that is done for that uh reason then that can also be just shown as something that 
validated by this specific uh, peer or institution or whatever that you can use within the other relationship. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about that idea of having visible validations. I mean, this is in the whole chain places is currencies, basically. Uh, uh, that that wider wider definition of of what seeing flows. Mm. Nice, nice. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about kind of the financing side of this. Um, you know, there's a whole movement afoot, and I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit, Victor, of kind of regenerative finance, right? Um, Regen Network is, is one that I'm you know most familiar with. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. You know, I, I find it interesting. I also have certain reservations and skepticisms uh, about it, about trying to monetize, uh, you know, the idea in my mind is you're trying to define other forms of capital, right? Not just financial capital in the strict sense, but also ecological capital and social capital. Uh, and why do you want to do that? It's because then it can be kind of properly valued in some kind of financial system, you know, transformed financial system. Uh, you know, the reservation that I have about it is, uh, well, one, that the system can be gamed in various ways. Um, another is that it can encourage bad behavior, like we sometimes see with, you know, new stories about carbon credits, you know, kind of providing an indulgence for companies to keep polluting kind of thing. Um, also, you know, if you're trying, if you're putting everything in kind of a spreadsheet or an immutable ledger on a blockchain, uh, you're quantifying everything, you know, that also might internally kind of corrupt the in intrinsic qualitative value of it, uh, in, in various ways. And so those are some hesitations I have. And I've talked to Gregory, who's co-founder of Regen Network, who basically wants to get, you know, finance into like regenerative stewards, farmers, and you know, landscape stewards' hands to be able to do their work, and he has he has really you know good responses to all of my all, all of my skepticisms, um, and he you know some of the things he suggests are, are I think along the lines of what you're what you were mentioning, Victor. But I, I want to kind of get both your your general sense about finance in general, you know, uh, as well as this kind of if you're familiar with it, regenerative finance. Well, so, go ahead. I, go ahead. I, I can speak to how we ran our farm over the years. Um, we definitely were a pay-as-you-go farm. Uh, we, we rarely took out loans on anything. I think the first time we took a loan out was when we needed to buy a refrigerated truck because we were moving into the wholesale realm. Um, and that was one of those situations where no bank at that point would give us a loan. And so I hit my mom up, actually, and and she was a retired school teacher so it's not like she was flush with money uh, but at the same time uh she built a loan out for us for that that was the first thing that we really ever took a loan out on and i mean other than our mortgage um but it's something that i always thought about over the years because it really gave us the flexibility to not be tied down to anything so the best story that illustrates that is once we started uh, growing for a regional wholesaler, uh, we were selling to them, we were selling as many cases of chard and kale as we could send to them in a week. Uh, there was no limit, like as many as we could harvest. And we're talking three to 500 cases 
a week of cases, 24 bunches. So you can see, I mean, we're talking some volume of, of greens. Uh, we did that for two and a half seasons. And then halfway through that, the second season um, or the third season, uh, one of the biggest outlets for them said, well, why are we paying all these Northwest farmers $2 a box more when we could just be getting all the same produce out of California for $2 less? Because there was somebody at the at the corporate, it was like one of the big grocery chains. And so in one day, we went from selling as many cases as we could to zero. Um, and that affected probably a half dozen other farmers that were in the same, same deal. Uh, a couple of the other farmers were completely leveraged. They had a bunch of loans out to, to uh, make sure that their operating costs could be covered. So they were forced to figure out where they were going to sell all that produce because now they had no outlet for it. And so they definitely, a couple of them did okay. A couple of them didn't. Um, luckily for us, we were not leveraged at all. And so we had the ability, we just went ahead and tilted all under, you know, I mean, that was, it was nutrient back into the soil is the way we look at it. Um, it was a bummer, but it was nice because we didn't lose our shirt over that. So that was one of those good lessons for us of like, the moments of not being leveraged. And so for me going forward, I always tried to figure out how could I build my financing into my price that I was selling my product. And that was something that I tried to tried to bring up these new and alternative ideas to our co-ops. And they were just not, not really into it as much as because it was kind of out there. But my concept that I always thought was if if you can get a customer base that will say in the beginning, they're going to pay $3 a unit. Let's call it a bunch of carrots. I just to keep it simple, $3 for a bunch of carrots while I'm trying to figure out my systems and trying to get my, my systems down. And I have extra, but it only cost me a dollar to produce that carrot. I've got $2 of over, you know, of margin that I can work with to go towards equipment, to scale it up to a proper level. And I can learn that equipment too. That's something people don't realize that it takes a farmer some time to learn that equipment with the goal being that eventually I want to keep my, I want to start bringing my prices down because as long as I'm still covering my costs and making a little bit, I'm okay. And so there's that, there's that. So if I could eventually get to $2 or $1.75 for a bunch instead of three, that extra money I look at as like a, as like a kitty that the money can go into and, um, to help cover the cost of that equipment. And I then think about that expanding out into an entire community of farmers and consumers. And it's kind of like what Victor was saying with the, the software and the, the currency model is, can the consumer agree to pay more in the beginning for a beginning farmer in that network? And that extra money goes into this bank of sorts to help cover those costs. And then you have other farmers that have been established within that same community for years, and they're already operating at the, at the lower level of cost because they've already gotten to the point where they're efficient. So you're not looking at, well, that farmer's making more than me. You're just looking at like, I'm more efficient now. So I'm actually making a better, I'm making the margin that I need to survive. Um, I've just started thinking about systems like that, that 
we're not going to a bank or a financial institution or a private lender to ask for this money that then we're paying this extra percentage. We're basically paying as you go. And the consumer is paying that, but they're also under the understanding and agreement that over time, we're going to see it get cheaper and cheaper. And I, the big question for me always is at what scale do we have to operate for this to actually work? Because if it's two farms or three farms, it doesn't work very well. But if it's 15 or 20 farms, you know, it might work. Or if it's 10 people or 20 people, maybe it doesn't work, but does it work at a thousand people? I don't know. That's something that I've been, been really brainstorming about. And that's something that I'm really curious going forward is finding what that holding capacity for a, a, a community, there's a term for it. And I don't know what it is, but a collective of sorts um, but that community module, what is that proper scale that it needs to operate at for some of these systems to work? Um, that has its advantages and disadvantages, but it also allows us to be a little bit more free from these private equity or public equity institutions that have basically created the issue of where we're at. Um, and, and the other thing I'd say to that too is that a lot of those private equity and and uh, bank institutions, they just don't understand that we're up against nature here as well, you know? And so that's the community behind you is that you can create that narrative around, we're gonna have some good years, we're gonna have some bad years, but hopefully with the collective of farmers, it's not gonna be a complete loss, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are some of my initial thoughts on financing. Um, Cause I, I do get nervous whenever it's like, oh yeah, we'll just take out a $500,000 loan at six, seven, eight, nine percent You know, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Victor, you want to run? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is, this is a really big topic for me. I've been, I, I, before I fell into permaculture, I fell into money and like what money is and how it works and all that kind of stuff. And I've been digging in that. That's how I found whole chain also, like through the metacurrency <clears throat> stuff. Um, and like, I really like, uh, Gregory and region network and, and all the stuff I've been following what they're doing for a long time. And, and for me, it's a really like he, he, to me seems like a very, very, very pragmatic person that's been doing, uh, regenerative farming for a long time and realizing that it is like that threshold of acquiring land to me is like the big, one of the biggest things, like it's either, either we find some sort of process in which there is voluntary or some sort of forced uh, movement of uh, people into land stewardship that aren't currently in land stewardship, or there is some sort of capital uh, way of uh, achieving capital fluency and fluidity so that we can purchase land that is degraded and that can be regenerated and that kind of stuff. And to me, it feels like that that is kind of where I see Regen or, or region network being like a really major player in kind of figuring out ways for people to get that are skilled and committed and just want to farm regeneratively to get onto a piece of land and to do that through financial mechanisms that enable um things like uh, big, things like land trusts and stuff like that as well, but that are backed, the productive capacity gets backed uh, in different ways. And, and that's one of the most interesting parts of it to me is what I really want to get into in the coming years is 
uh, asset-backed currencies that are backed by actual production, so backed by mushrooms, backed by, you know, that kind of thing, that are where you can invest in, because I know that I'll want to eat different types of food throughout my life, so if I invest and have faith in the credits I invest in uh, that can be redeemed uh, at a later date, uh, then investing at a discount is a great way to spend money because it's not not only am I getting a discount, but it's also, especially right now when the, like there's so much inflation and that kind of stuff, this becomes like, well, I, I have the rights to 100 pounds of mushrooms. I mean, that's going to be good to eat. Like and and if the prices go up, I can still redeem it for my mushrooms. You know that's that's so it's it's like and I I think that model goes for a lot of different things. We're looking at that for housing and the eco village of like you can you can pre-purchase square meters of rent, uh, and then whatever happens to the pricing, you've still got that rent that you can that you can redeem it for. So I think that that uh, and then 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 what I'm hoping is that this is actually this may actually be the bridge of moving from the kind of totally baseless money layer, which is just you know the or it's not baseless. It's based on how much can people lend, like how how much fractional reserve can we can we push so that we get more money spinning. That's the that's the basis for all that. But can we base money instead on a regenerative process like that, where you have products? uh that are uh contributing to the places they are produced in uh that are backing backing the actual currency that's circulating um and i think that what they're doing is really uh, with eco credits and stuff like that is pioneering that kind of work so i'm really i'm i'm really excited about that uh, i think much of what we what i would like to see uh, is moving towards the model where we don't do as much quantification and and like fungibility and that kind of thing around products realizing that you know they come out of unique environments and um and that we go more towards some sort of access model where you don't maybe purchase food all that much but you're basically becoming some sort of member or part of a commons that supply food and you have access to that food because you supply something to the commons which is basically like a more intricate way of doing gift cultures and stuff like that on bigger scales uh, i mean that's where i would love to go towards but as you know becoming more pragmatic as i uh, get older and less idealistic maybe after having kids and all that uh, i feel like it's it's pretty um, it's pretty good to experiment with with uh, with those things, keeping in mind the danger of of letting letting capital in, so to speak, like the the possibility of getting, especially ownership uh, of of a lot of stuff. Like that's why I really like co-ops. I've started several co-ops, and and I love the idea of being able to uh, continue steering even though you're getting things like loans and stuff like that. And um, because you don't have that ownership that that like ownership over the process in the same way that you usually do with uh corporations and stuff like that so that that i think like and that i really enjoy uh watching that evolve in like um how people can invest money without actually getting over ownership over processes but instead getting uh some sort of asset that is um redeemable in the future um and i i i can't say that i have a clear picture of the steps that regen network is going to take but i just i'm, I'm very i'm very curious to see because uh, i know like just looking at what they're what they're supporting i'm getting really um, excited about the people and and, and projects that get 
that get that money that get funneled in through all of their uh, credit work. So Victor, are you saying that at some point in our MetaMask, we might have uh, like kale coins and potato coins and stuff like that? I mean, is that the direction that we could go with a lot of this? I think, I mean, for me, it would be really easy, um, at least thinking like with the software that we're building or with the software that's emerging in the whole chain ecosystem, because a lot of that is about mutual credit and mm -hmm. there's there's like energy credits and there's all sorts of the whole the whole project's been uh, built by this company called Holo, which issued hosting credits as the first thing that they did so that they could have money to build the whole service. Um, and I think that it's really simple actually for me to, if there is enough faith in people to, in my operation, I could issue credits uh, and people could just buy them uh, for mushrooms. And as long as we find agreements, I think that's gonna be very interesting to see like what, making basket, get basket um, currencies, for instance, of like, so that, so that there is some fungibility between credits locally at least. Um, yeah, I think we could easily see see going that route of um, people seeing what productive capacity they have and, and offering up for the future um, for people that see the value in, in supporting that. Um, because it also makes like we've 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 created this kind of money that that is good for getting small pieces or like stuff, like generic stuff. And there's so much stuff in the world. So if we can make money that's based on the more produce there is the more money there is i think that that pattern is actually quite powerful to 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 get to to use to use that kind of um modality of of um, choice uh, and optionality uh, that people get from from using credit but basing it on something that is actually you know generative to to the ecosystems I'm very curious to dig more into this <clears throat> issue of fungibility uh, versus non-fungibility. Uh, I think that's this is pretty core at kind of like, you know, at least the financial question, right? Where we moved basically to completely kind of fungible economic system. You know, money can can buy this, can buy that. Uh, of course, it doesn't incorporate much of the negative externalities, um, you know, associated with it. And, and so this idea that you're basing money on real assets uh, according to the values uh, that we hold regarding ecological stewardship, uh, food security and things is, is fascinating. And, and you mentioned, Victor, that um, you know, you'd, want to, you'd want to see like there'd be some fungibility still like in my, you know, in my simplistic kind of formulation here, it's like, okay, I have a I have a, a soil carbon credit and I have a potato credit and I have a kale credit and and I can trade these credits with with other with other folks um, and you know they can even be um, interchanged you know but I guess I'm thinking in terms of like reinforcing feedback loops and if there would be like like what kind of what what kind of um, you know frictions would you need to introduce to not just you know, reinvent money as we know it today, right? Uh, you know, would there be some kind of uh, push or pull towards just complete, you know, fungibility again and external externalization, you know, uh, you know, of externalities? 
I don't know if that question make, makes sense. No, I, yeah, I think it does. I mean, to me, I think this is definitely, it's definitely, a, um, I don't know if I'd call it a fear, but it's definitely a concern that is really clear in my mind of like uh, actually letting letting that um, kind of specter of, of uh, you know, uh, basically uh, uh, extractive process in to whatever system you're doing because there is all that. I mean, people that are currently uh, uh, has have a lot of uh, money right now are totally wanting to use that to buy really, like they also want to buy really nice regenerative product. The people that don't have money also want that. And I think it's, it's really, um, uh, it's an experimentation to me. I think, I think it will be interesting to see like how far do we want to go? Like, because it's, it's a lot of it is like, how much can you create? I really like, um, there's this book called free fair and alive, uh, by David Bollier and the, the commonings kind of, um, movement and they talk about this idea of provisioning quite a lot and like creating so creating parallel spaces spaces that are more market-based and then spaces that are non-market-based where you actually come to agreement within a group of how to divide things and, and then maybe you use uh, some uh, monetary uh, currencies and stuff in order to uh, acquire what you need for that group but then within that group it is not no longer uh, a market mechanism that divides uh, all that stuff uh, and using those kind of like spaces to to start building building commons where fungibility isn't like you things don't move in and out out of that membrane so easily uh, I think that's really interesting for experimentation I'd love to like that's something that we're there's like a, a um a vegetable like a vegetable community garden thing happening in the village that's not going to be like people aren't going to buy their food there they're just going to be a member and you spend some time there and you grow things and that's not going to be a market-based thing but there might be things like you instead of instead of spending time there you might spend time taking care of the kids so that other people can spend time there and like those kind of things might be as valid as of an input as the 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 actual you know um uh weeding or whatever whatever the other work will be um and that would be to me something where it's not like those those uh, tasks wouldn't be fungible with with like buying just putting in uh 50 bucks you know it's not that it, it's not that full correlation um and i'm hoping that that's that's something that we can experiment a lot more with like making being really clear about is this a, a market uh facilitated space or not and 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 building out building out the commons uh where we can and then and then allowing for it for because we all have needs of of national currency like we all we all have things like taxes and and you know rent and we have a lot of electricity bills right now like that all that kind of stuff you it's you, you know you're you're stuck in that unless you really find some way of getting land and off-gridding and doing that kind of stuff but that's um for most people pretty hard to pretty hard to do mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Chris, I'm curious if you have um, kind of how you're taking uh, this conversation with Victor is talking about, because it seems like what you're describing, Chris, is kind of like this endogenous internal generation of generation of finance, or even thinking of in terms of like the customer is kind of financing, like pre-financing the farmer, right, by maybe paying a little bit more because they know that the farmer is, is like, you know, still refining their processes. Um, I'm curious kind of how you're, you know, like, like how you're interpreting and thinking about 
what what Victor is talking about, and do you, do you see it as you know as useful or or, or maybe non applicable to how you're thinking about things? Oh, I think that what he's saying is spot on, and the way that I look at it is, I always I always work with things in a non linear fashion. So I'm never like, oh, here, I've come up with a solution. I'm going to stick with this solution now. For me, it's my more of like a uh, kind of what Victor's saying is a solution that will work at some point, but we have to work to get to that point because, you know, there's a lot of resistance by the zeitgeist to accept cryptocurrency at this point. I mean, I don't want to just throw it all into the world of crypto, but it is kind of that concept. And so in the meantime, that's what I've always been stuck with, with my farming too, is like, well, I want to get to this point where I'm fully sustainable, blah, 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 all that stuff. But in the meantime, I need to raise my family and I need to pay my bills and all this stuff. So I would look at most things as a hybrid, hybrid solution. So kind of what I'm saying is like, in the meantime, we can use kind of what I'm saying as we start to implement some of these new uh, new ideas, because honestly, once we get into the world of the holo chain and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, it is a completely different shift of the mindset, especially for people that are non-technical. Like I've just seen how long it takes for, for the common person to adopt that. Um, does that mean 20 years? No, not necessarily. Maybe three to seven years or something like that. But in the meantime, that's I'd love to use these other old old methodologies. And that's how I'm always thinking is like, do I see a lot of problems with our current, you know, system that we have? Yeah, there's a ton, but how can I hack that current system to make it work to, cause all we're really trying to do is come up with a way to better our experience with our other humans. That's, that's my main goal is, is like, I'm not trying to win, you know? I'm just trying to better my experience with others. So it's like in, so I just do that all the time. Like in the meantime, let's do this and let's look at these new ideas that are, that are out there and, and how can we be open to them? So, um, cause I, I mean, I brought up the idea of, of blockchain as a way to be used within our distribution system for the regional, um, distributor that I was working with. I was like, in the future, this is going to make complete sense because you can follow that, cabbage from the time it's planted as a seed all the way to the person's dinner plate if you want and there can be a immutable ledger that tells the story of that vegetable you know and i was in a board meeting explaining this whole idea once i understood the possibility and it was it was cricket chirps you know like nobody had any idea what i was talking about so um so anyway that's that's kind of where i'm at on all of that right now Right, and holochain is kind of a rebellion against blockchain too, right? Right. Because right. the danger of having everything on a mutable ledger is, you know, uh, you know, is the police state basically, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Victor, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. And that's that's like having these these membranes as we usually talk about them, and like you 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 don't get to see things unless you're in, invited into the into the space where where things are visible, and they might be very open for some things, but for some things they definitely won't be. Um, and it's and it's it's something that came up for me when you were speaking is like I had this I was listening to um, Toby Hemingway a couple of years ago. He had he did a that uh, presentation called Liberation Permaculture, I think it was, um, and what, that, he'd just been reading. Um, 
uh, seeing like a state and and those books and like that really, I think that that idea of legibility is really key going forward because uh, I really really like the thought of uh, having legibility for enough things that we get to navigate the world that we're living in uh, in ways that work, uh, but then maintaining uh, some sort of seclusion or at least the privacy around what you're doing with the rest of your, like I think not everything uh, should go on the books. And, and, and I am really uh, intrigued by the idea of being able to uh, collaborate without having it be fully, fully public to everybody because it's, it, is kind of like i mean the whole thing of blockchains being trustless is trust destruction in a way like it doesn't it doesn't make it possible for us to have uh delicate and nuanced things happen if there is no uh safety around our relationship and conversation and whatever's happening so i think that that is super important to be able to be able to do things that aren't aren't um uh, exposed in that way, uh, and at the same time, being able to have accountability within within that group, I think that that's what what we are, what I am really excited about uh, with the tech that 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 Holchain has been building, because that's kind of that possibility of, I mean, once you're in the membrane, you can see everything, kind of, uh, or a lot of the time. I mean, you can you can do different things there as well, but but that's a very different. Uh, view than than having it uh, completely open to all of these outside actors, which I am. I mean, I live in Sweden. We have a very strong, we have a very strong uh, state uh, in a way for for good and bad, uh, and it is uh, we are almost cashless at this point, which is a little bit terrifying to me. Where it's like it, I I I feel that 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 possibility of having a sort of fluidity and uh, privacy around what's happening is is actually really, really fundamental for us to be able to relate to each other. And um, and it's also just like, you know, cash has zero uh, costs of, of uh, transaction. You know, it's like, it doesn't, it, it's, it's, there's, there's a cost to maintaining the cash supply, but, you know, it's, 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 whenever you use all these systems, there's somebody somewhere that needs to be, Cut in on something uh, a lot of the time, so it's um, I, I I'm definitely uh, you know hesitant about a lot of those things. I, I think it's beautiful though that you're already onto this other system. Like blockchain itself isn't even fully adopted by very many people, honestly, in the world, and yet it's cool that there's these evolving systems like what you're saying with Holochain that's already a step ahead of what's not even adopted yet. You know, I think that's, I think that's awesome that we have these new, like the human condition is always looking two to three steps ahead. It just depends on which periphery you're checking for all that. So I, it, cause, and that's the thing is like, as you guys were saying this, I didn't even fully understand the full evolution of what, what you're saying that this is going to be for something like Holochain. I didn't even understand that it had this like membrane that you were talking about, but now I'm, it's starting to click for me. And I was like, oh yeah, I can see. And it's great to see like, we're, we're evolving simultaneously past while most people here in America, you say blockchain and they still have no idea what you're talking about. You know, they might not understand Bitcoin or something like that, just from a, a catch word, catch phrase. And yet there's these groups of us that are already years ahead. You know, I think that's great.
So. Uh, I, I just want to clarify something in my own mind, <clears throat> Victor, maybe you can help. So there seems to be an analogy here between kind of this, this membrane of privacy or intimacy, and then outside of that, you know, you're more, you're more legible. And then what you're talking about before of like this necessity uh, to interact on a market occasionally. And, and so that requires some fungibility. And it seems like there's an analogy between fungibility and being more open. And there's, a, there's an analogy between non-fungibility and being more private and having these nested membranes. Is that, does that make sense, that kind of comparison? Uh, I think so, to some degree at least. Uh, I can see, I can see being able to handle. Uh, I mean, if I'm thinking, thinking of things like, uh, you know, there is a whole uh, world of like um, NFTs and like the Vinay Gupta is doing a lot of things around like putting putting unique things onto blockchains and stuff. And there is kind of like that. I I don't see that that necessarily uh, correlates, but I think it's much easier. Um, it's hard. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating actually, like what, how, how valuations of NFTs and stuff like that happen, because it's such a weird space to me. Like what, why, how do you, how do you decide what, how many of these fungible, you know, dollars are, are assigned to this picture and not that picture. And it's like, it's a very, it's a very fluid kind of weird thing. Um, Whereas inside of a member, and I think think you can still, I would be totally um, easy. I mean, if I was selling mushroom credits, they'd be they'd be mushrooms. You know, it wouldn't be like the specific batch of of today uh, or something like that. So, um, I don't know if they're necessarily linked, but I think it's much easier to not fall into like uh, having to compete. I mean, to me, like you you wouldn't be I me. Uh, with uh, the kind of small scale, locally produced, all of our substrate is from Sweden, blah, 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 that doesn't have to com be competing with like European sources that are like real big factories that come from somewhere else. And they, they're they a lot cheaper than what we produce uh, because of creating the kind of membrane first of like people care that they are from here and that this is kind of capacity that we have. So that might carry on whatever happens around us and that kind of thing. Um, so it's more of like it's more of that. Uh, I mean, uh, embodying or being able to, to to platform a value to have like this is a value that we care about and we can put that inside of a membrane. Like the membrane can be valued, whereas the open space is hard to do that often. Um, yeah, I think that's where I'm. At. So uh, I want to ask. This is for for both of you. Um, what are in terms of kind of where you see where you you're wanting things to evolve what are the biggest bottlenecks like like what are the the things that we really need to figure out we really need to to work on to kind of take the next evolutionary step just with local food systems in general is that what you're saying yeah and and competing you know so the idea with you know regenerative local food systems is eventually the idea i think is that you know it will replace the industrial global food system model which is you know destroying you know uh you know the planet you know the planet's ecology um biodiversity soil etc 
um, as well as hollowing out local communities. And so seeing this as kind of, you know, an alternative that is still facing a lot of challenges in this environment, and, and maybe the conditions will change where there will be a very rapid, you know, uh, increase. And, and so I guess in just in current, in kind of current conditions right now, and, you know, we're still largely, you know, part of a, you know, global capitalist economy, you know, we're still largely in a, you know, at least in the United States, a corrupt political system that's, you know, dominated by money. And, you know, local farmers who are trying to do right by the land, you know, face a lot of headwinds, right? And so we're trying to figure out, you know, how, you know, how we can cooperate to compete, so to speak, right? Uh, and so I'm just curious, like, like, what are the biggest challenges that you're seeing right now for the farmers in particular, or kind of local regenerative food systems in general? Well, I, I talking with several farmers around the country, I've kind of reached out to a bunch of people this in the last couple of weeks just to see where things are at. And really, it, it's kind of like a, a positive note is when COVID happened, a lot of these systems fell into place really quickly and they worked really well. And then as we saw the the, everything, the madness go away and people got back into their old patterns again, then most of those systems dwindled and most people shut them down. That sucks because the farmers couldn't continue with what they were doing, um, but it also is great to see how fast they could move into that sort of action and people responded. If there was a more drastic collapse, I don't know if it would be the same, but I mean, I think that was that was a pretty drastic scenario. I mean, we shifted our our distribution system from farmers markets to online sales and then home delivery in a period of two weeks, you know. Um, so that's one thing that's promising, I guess. And I think that if things ever got really weird, it would come down to how are we going to accomplish the work that needs to be done? Because if if fuel and all that is not as readily available, we're going to have to go towards people power again, you know, more. Um, and so that's the other, that's the other thing. The biggest hangup that I see right now for farmers is labor. I mean, that's across the board. There's just not the labor available. And that's, and whenever I say labor, I'm talking on people that are working on maybe a bigger scale than a, than a, a, a small, small, like community garden situation. And that's something that I'm always really interested in because it's like, well, what scale should we be operating at right now? You know, because um, it isn't realistic to say in a, like the area that I live in, let's say there's 200,000 people here. Well, it's not realistic to say there's going to be 20,000 people farming um, within the next five years. Um, I don't think that's realistic. Should there be? Yeah, there probably should be, but is there? No. Um, and so it's like, how, what is the proper scale for a community-based farm to operate at? And I don't, I don't know what that is. That's something that I am really always tapping into and trying to, trying to figure out that that's probably the biggest thing, you know, I mean, I'm starting to look at robotics for other farmers. Like, does that make any sort of sense for the future and, and replacing people weeding in the fields with, with robots? There's some really cool stuff happening right now. I know that you're beholden to the technology then, but you know, I, I don't know. I, 
that's that's really where things are at right now is getting the work done because even if you have a hundred people that are interested in farming in your area, those hundred people, how much effect do they have on the overall food system? Mm, it's, those are all questions to be had. Victor? Yeah, thank you. Um, like from, from what I'm, what I'm experiencing in our tiny business in a way compared to a lot of other things, is that um, at least here people have been a little bit less um, like money is tight in a way like as the co as the energy costs gone up because in, in especially in Sweden and Europe the the electricity costs have skyrocketed quite a bit uh, so most people around here are like you know they their their month costs every month are like up some thirty percent or something just from 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 the energy prices um, and that makes it harder to rely on uh you know people that and people's kind of uh, more uh idealistic uh kind of uh, wanting to support uh but they're not not feeling that they can afford it in a way uh so i but but really i think that the biggest hurdle is actually uh people's understanding of health uh, in a way, uh, I think that that because me that's the what I've seen as the biggest pathway for. I mean, we might be a little bit of a special case because mushrooms is kind of a the people that know about mushrooms are usually people that are really into like you know studying the body and you know a lot of people are mushrooms are just a weird thing that doesn't really matter. Um, but um, I think that that idea of understanding that healthy soil produces healthy food produces healthy bodies uh is really like so that you can understand that i will live longer and not have the same kind of health issues and problems if i eat well uh, and that is kind of a very big driving force i think for a lot of people to actually find the food that will make them healthy and that that i think is uh, actually a pretty uh healthy way of looking at like why support your local farm because I want that health because it's kind of like if I can be healthy then my community can be healthy and then the whole region can be healthy like it's it's a good place to start and I think that that um, kind of education around uh, those kind of things has been lacking I mean we've lived through uh, uh, I don't know almost a century now of, of, of chemical farming that that totally undermined that whole idea of of living systems and uh, and we're now really coming in to understand things like microbiome and, and what that does to us. And, and uh, so I think that that like education around uh, what does uh, your food do to you uh, is actually uh, maybe the thing that's most missing. And that's really great to hear, uh, Chris, about what you're doing with the podcasting and stuff and, and, and highlighting farmers and soil and that kind of stuff, I think is crucial. Uh, for people to to understand that their own health and their families and their kids and all that is is going to be supported by making sure that there are people around them that farm in a way that supports health in general. Um, so I think that that's that's probably what's going to get people most excited and 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 supportive uh, in my mind. Um, um, but yeah, I, I mean, working working in a and also also that thing of of like you were saying labor and then maybe like a lot of the hybrid models that have worked before like csas where people come out and help and do things like that and might get to work again i mean that's also a thing of like how stressed people are uh, their workload and like how much time can you actually uh 
give to 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 your your producers and that kind of stuff but infrastructure for that would also be uh like getting like mixing the whole thing of credits and work uh might be actually quite useful i mean there's a i really love the idea like the japanese uh when they had they've had a lot of issues with their currency for a long time and and they started the, the fure kipu which is like the you you i go to a, a family close to me to care for an elderly and my elderlies that live somewhere else get care from someone else so it's like a parallel system to the national uh currency uh, based uh, healthcare system and something like that could also be possible where it's like i i do something in the city for someone and somebody else in the countryside goes and and uh, helps out at a farm and somehow that gets tallied uh, and 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 sorted out and i think interesting experiments uh, like that i would love to see because there are a lot of people that actually could could spend time doing doing some of the work but maybe not where the work needs to be done i found it i found it fascinating that that um chris you were you were talking the thing that i heard that you emphasize the most is is lack of labor and so that that seems to be kind of based on a a mentality that you know in a country where like one two percent i think of the population is involved in farming and, we, and that just seems like the status quo and farming for many people seems like a low status kind of profession um but of course if we want smaller scale farms agricultural farms we're gonna need a lot more farmers and and so there definitely has to be a mind shift around, you know, around that and around kind of, you know, the prestige of of farming in the right way. And then to your point, Victor, you know, you, it seemed like what you were focusing on the most is like knowledge and the paradigm around health and around kind of these embedded systems of the gut biome and the soil and, and everything else. And it seems like so it seems like kind of what we're talking about here is a bit of a, a paradigm change from both sides. And of course, they're they're both kind of connected because if you're more concerned with your health and food, but maybe you can't afford to, you know, get all of your food from the local farmer, then you might start your own garden, right? And then that might get you into production, right? And then you're also a food producer. Um, and so there could be a lot of uh, synergies here. Um, so that's just an observation. Um, so uh, I think we'll wrap up pretty soon, but I, I want to give both of you a, a final platform to anything that you think that we haven't uh, addressed enough or haven't addressed that that you think is important to emphasize. So like kind of any any you know if a question that you think should have been asked or you'd like to further elaborate on something you've already mentioned. I want to give both of you you know plat final platform and do that. And there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I think the thing that I would say closing is that I, I think that these kind of conversations are really the most beneficial thing that we can be doing right now as a culture. Um, and the fact that, I mean, we, the amount of miles between the three of us is pretty amazing that we are able to exchange information. And I know I don't, I just don't take it lightly of how, how strong this kind of interaction really is um and so i really feel like that's something it's something that i've tweeted out uh recently quite often is like i keep 
working on people of like, where are the real conversations happening? You know, like where, where is that salon mindset of yesteryear where everybody would get together and just talk about stuff instead of just trying to gain following and go viral and all of that, which I understand why people want to do that. But I, I'm just a, I'm a big advocate for small group, small groups. And that's really what's driving me to go into this podcast realm too, is the one-on-one or one-on-five, you know, group discussion. And that I think a lot of synergy comes out of those kind of situations. So I would say that's really all I want to see is this kind of conversation keep happening with, with small focus groups of people. Um, And, and I also find that these situations are the least toxic interactions between humans. Um, There's something to that. There's something we can gain, like, I'm answering my own question here is like, what scale should we be operating at, you know, farming? Well, what scale should we be operating at coming up with, with brainstorms and ideas around these solutions too. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I just always appreciate the, the platforms just to chat with others. Yeah. Just want to just, just uh, add something to that. I, I, I find it endlessly fascinating that I agree with you, like these kind of small group conversations are vital. Um, and often, you know, a lot of what we're talking about are these localized, you know, localization, local systems, but equally vital to these is to have these small group conversations that are distributed, you know, yeah. around the world, right? So it's kind of like this, you know, the term I use for it is cosmolocalism, or I, I didn't invent that term, you know, a lot of people use that term, uh, you know, where we are, you know, learning from each other, right, and experimenting our own context, and then, um, you know, learning things and then sharing that knowledge that other people can adapt in their context. And, you know, I think that's a beautiful thing. I don't know if the internet, you know, due to various biophysical uh, factors will be around forever. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, that's a whole conversation, but while it is, I think it's something that we really need to, you know, emphasize like leverage, you know, um, uh, right now. So I just wanted to kind of add that thought. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. <clears throat> Victor? Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, what came up now when you were, when you were speaking uh, is, is the, I work with uh, Nora Bateson, who's also been on your podcast, and, and like that idea of like, because we're so stuck we're so stuck in our ways of doing our scripts and our thinking and our minds and like figuring out ways to work together better is like the maybe maybe even below all of the stuff that we've been talking about to me like that idea of who we are and what's a group and what's me and and how do I learn and understanding that we learn all the time and and that we are uh, always in relationship with others as we, you know, do things. And and to, because I, my my experience in the last five six years doing things locally is that the hardest thing to to do is like convivial uh, cooperation in a way. Like it's really easy for projects to start, but then once you kind of the honeymoon kind of phase is kind of over, then it's really easy to get into, you know, back and forth and personal issues and, and like these things that tend to slow things down and eventually halt a lot of projects. And, and, and I think that that like 
learning to change our ways in how we relate to other people and to uh, uh, be able to uh, grow with other people uh, and be open to to learning uh, at, at a totally different kind of um, frequency like 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 becoming people that understand that we learn all the time and that everybody learns and that there's not somebody who has all the like answers to how we're supposed to do things, that we're supposed to find them and figure out what they've said, but but like being being much more responsive to the uh, like how did how did we end up where we are in a way, or what 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 is it that is actually um, uh, keeps us doing what we're doing, uh, and 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 being able to see that, uh, I think those things are 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 really important, and 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 to me, like a lot of the time, I I like get into a project and then after a while I realize okay this is not probably not working because of our relationships and not so much that we're not doing the right way or the right model or the right thing it's like how do we how do we understand um, ourselves in relationship and learning is like yeah it's 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 so ingrained in our having grown up in schools and all that like how, how we how we are um, have learned to see authority and um, yeah all that stuff so for me that's like that's a, that's a it's a it's a missing piece but it's also something that's really hard to bring into a conversation like this because it's such a yeah it turns everything into mushy mushy stuff <laughs> yeah um well uh in the in the spirit of uh you know continuing the relationship and the conversation i'd love to have you guys back on in the future i think there's just so many more topics around this that can be discussed and explored uh, and perhaps also you know bringing in one or two others as well i think you know i you know food systems in general is is probably my primary focus and so just the the more that we can kind of bring people in and have these conversations the better um and so i'd love to love to have another episode you know uh some point down the road and if, and if you guys you know can think of anybody who would really you know really be a good fit for this kind of you know relationship and dialogue um please let me know and we can set something up i think that, i think it'd be great sounds great right. i'd love that and i'm really grateful for being on yeah uh, i'd love to do more for listening it's really yeah, I love the, the 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 melding of different people and different conversations. It's a really wide and flowy place. I love it. Nice, thanks. Yeah, that, that's that's what we're trying to cultivate, and so glad when, when, when I'm glad when people experience it that way. That makes me happy. Well, all right. Uh, any any last words? Any last words? Any just thing that's at the kind of tip of your tongue that you know you just want to get out real quick before <laughs> before we. Uh, hit end. I'm good to go. We're good. Yeah, no, thanks. I'm great. All right. Thanks All right. For Take care, guys. Being here. All right. See ya. See ya.